Welcome to the Richard Roper Podcast. I am Richard Roper, which is the perfect name for this particular podcast. Thanks to everybody who's been listening. Lots going on. We're mid-July, almost getting toward the end of July, which means summer movie season, of course. And there has been so much talk for the last few days, weeks, nay, months about the dual release of uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer. What are they calling it? Uh, calling it uh, Barbie, Barbieheimer, Barbenheimer, Oppie Barb, whatever the case may be. I love it. I love the fact that so many people are so excited to see these two huge and very, 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 very different movies in the theaters. We're actually going to talk about uh, historically some other uh, movie dates in history where two big films came out, sometimes very different, sometimes kind of part of the same genre, kind of interesting. It used to happen a lot more than it does now these days uh, with fewer theatrical releases and the studios being extra careful. They try not to pit big movies against each other. But in this case, uh, the respective studios felt, hey, there's enough room to go around. And you know, it's been interesting because people keep saying, what are you going to see first? Or, oh, what a conundrum. And I'm like, here's the great thing about the Roman calendar. You can see one on one day and maybe even see the next movie the next day. I, I actually do. I will suggest people have asked me this. Should they make it a double feature? And I would say no, first of all, because they're very different. And I'm all for people seeing, you know, binge watching movies and seeing two films and whether it's at home or at the theaters. But, you know, Oppenheimer is three hours long. Uh, and I just feel like you want to see that and really soak it in and not dash off to see Barbie. And or in the reverse order, just my opinion on that. I'll be giving you my opinion of those two films. We're also going to talk about the latest from the Hollywood strikes and more bad behavior at a concert. But the question is, who engaged in the bad behavior? Was it the artist or was it the fans? I think you might know the incident I'm talking about. All of that and much, much more. But first, here's your reminder. The Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly. And to compete in today's online business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business's success because they believe that today's online world is your online opportunity Visit AmericanEagle.com to get started today. That's AmericanEagle.com. All right, I want to start with the latest um, from the Hollywood strike. We're talking about the writer strike and then uh, Saturday after. I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you've been you know keeping track at least uh, somewhat with everything that's going on. And there's still a lot of back and forth. And unfortunately, I don't think we're close to seeing a settlement. I did find this interesting because uh, there's a piece in Variety, the Showbiz Bible. One of the showbiz Bibles, that's for sure. There's a piece in Variety uh, addressing some of the questions I've been asked uh, by people on Twitter and email and the various uh, social media sites. Uh, here we go. This is uh, from Variety. The SAG after strike has sparked a great deal of discussion and confusion about what is forbidden, what is still okay. SAG after has put out a detailed FAQ, frequently asked questions for members, non-members, indie producers, other groups, and of course, viewers. People still have questions. All right, here's one. I'm a film critic. Can I still review movies? The answer is absolutely. Critics are not on strike and are not obligated to stop reviewing movies or TV shows. Did have a few people ask me about that saying, well, well, aren't you promoting the studios by reviewing releases? Well, first of all, if my Writers Guild, the Sun-Times Union, if we went on strike, I don't think they'd stop making movies because I'm not around to review them. I think we know pretty much the answer to that. 
but more seriously, folks, you know, I have a contract myself with the Chicago Sun-Times and with other entities, and I'm contractually obligated to review movies, so I'm going to do my job. And also, nobody's asking me not to. I mean, nobody in the business. If you made a film or a streaming series and it's out there, they still want it to do well, even as the actors and the writers are striking to get their fair share of the pie does not mean that they want their current projects to tank. In fact, if they do well, maybe there'll be some grandfather clauses in, probably not. That would enable them to even more residuals. So uh, now the same thing uh, with interviews. Uh, as you probably have noticed, actors are not out there promoting their work right now because that is a condition of the strike. And for example, the recent premiere of Haunted Mansion, the Disney movie, which has Tiffany Haddish and Danny DeVito, uh keith stanfield a lot of really big names are in it they are not uh out there promoting the movie it's time to assemble the dream team we find someone who can communicate with these ghosts people used to eat here i told you she's good uh, it's a dining room i found a professor who else wanted mansions I've been dying to go to this place for years. Mystery lurks around every corner. I summon Madame Leota! I can show you what happened, but it will cost you three dollars. What? Siren robbery! Who said that? So at the premiere of, of Haunted Mansion, they had uh, people dressed up as uh, Disney characters. And people were saying, well, wait a minute, aren't those actors? And it's like, no, they're Disney. I mean, they're they're performers dressed as Disney characters. They're not crossing any picket lines. But for example, I, if you go to suntimes.com, of course, that's my home newspaper, the Chicago Sun-Times. If you go to suntimes.com, you'll see that I recently did an interview with uh, Anthony Michael Hall uh, in conjunction with the 40th anniversary of the original National Lampoon's Vacation came out in in 1983 my math tells me yep 40 years really uh, interesting piece in fact I, I i got the audio from that and maybe we'll uh maybe we'll get that onto the next podcast it was great talking to mike he's actually his real name is michael anthony hall but for union reasons because there's already an anthony hall he's already a michael hall he's known as anthony michael hall in any case the review uh the interview was conducted before uh the strike so that's not considered any kind of violation. Now, on the other hand, a lot of the cast members from National Lampoon's Vacation were going to be gathering at one of the many uh, cons. I believe it was 90s con here in Chicago in August. That's not going to happen. All the comic cons and 90s cons and various uh, promotional gatherings, whether it's in giant convention halls across North America, the world or cruise ships or whatever, that would be considered crossing the picket line. Uh, another question in Variety, I'm an entertainment journalist. Can I cover movies and TV? And it says, yes, entertainment journalists, whether they belong to a union or not, are not on strike. Even those broadcast journalists who are represented by SAG-AFTRA are not affected as the strike relates only to the TV theatrical contract. So, for example, I'm in SAG-AFTRA uh, because of all the work I've done in uh, television and, and radio through the years. But as you'll notice, in your local market, TV anchors are able to continue working because this is about tv and theatrical contract um also it's the job of entertainment journalists to cover strikes like this in the past when uh, you know when there have been uh lockouts or strikes in major league baseball or the national hockey league uh the nfl had a season way back when where the players went out on strike the beat writers are there covering that as you know they, they become more business and news reporters they always are anyway so 
uh, journalists who are involved in this uh, can continue to do the work. Another question is, uh, should I boycott Netflix or any other streaming service? Neither the WGA nor SAG-AFTRA has called for a boycott of Netflix or any other platform. It really won't make much of a difference if you do it on your own. Can SAG-AFTRA members do reality shows or game shows? Yes. The union has put out a document listing all the things that SAG-AFTRA performers can still do. That includes appearing on reality shows and game shows. They can do commercials. They can do video game work. They can do talk shows. We're talking about uh, theatrical content. You'll notice that they mentioned talk shows. The last time there was a big strike, some of the late night talk shows went on and did their shows without writers. So they didn't have monologues and they didn't have any scripted bits, but they were still able to do interviews. Uh, as far as I know, none of the uh, late night uh, familiar names, Colbert, Fallon, uh, Jimmy Kimmel at all, are planning to come back right now. Now, Jimmy Kimmel takes the summer off anyway, but... It is getting to be to the point where you're like, wow, they're showing reruns from a 2019 talk show. And talk show reruns really don't work like episodic TV reruns work, uh, which brings me to another point. No, this is kind of interesting. The networks are revising their uh, schedules for the fall of 2023 because they're, they're normal, reliable, scripted shows, whether it's something like uh, Abbott Elementary, uh, et cetera they're not in production they're they don't have fresh episodes and really nobody's even writing episodes so maybe a long time so for example yellowstone is going to make its broadcast debut on cbs on sundays in the fall this is a show that originated on paramount network which is owned by paramount global as is cbs and you'll see a lot of this were shows that were i don't want to say relegated to streaming platforms but were presented on streaming platforms are now going to get broadcast treatment. I know they're going to do that with um, Ms. Marvel, uh, which is now going to be moving to ABC. You're also going to see a lot of game shows. You're going to see a lot of reality programs more than ever. Also reruns of very popular shows like Blue Bloods on Friday nights. You're going to get the prices right at night and let's make a deal primetime. I know The Bachelor, they're doing several versions of The Bachelor, including there's a senior bachelor. I don't know if they're calling it senior bachelor, but that's what it is. And I saw this, the first Bachelor is a 71-year-old dude from Indiana. And I will just say this, though, you could look it up. Look up the first senior Bachelor. This dude looks like George Clooney's better-looking older brother. I mean, 71 ain't what it used to be. I mean, they did not find, and hey, listen, nothing wrong with that. Good for him. But, man, first of all, he looks like he's maybe 58. But he's, like, male model handsome. And I'm like, okay, so you're going to have, you know, they're not going to have a senior bachelor that looks like cocoon they should maybe they will but geez i don't know i don't think this dude i don't know about this seven i don't know what the story is with this 71 year old bachelor dude but i have a hard time that this guy is uh finding it difficult to get dates okay a couple other quick things uh some other numbers and you may have seen this because there you know there's this dichotomy and this kind of, I think, still in some cases, misconception, although people are are more sophisticated about the stuff than they used to be. They know The Rock makes hundreds and millions and zillions of dollars and all these big name actors are super wealthy. But, you know, here's your reminder. Again, the union has um, 160,000 members are in SAG-AFTRA. There's 11,000 Writers Guild of America members. In both cases, the vast majority of the union members are either not making a full-time living or are just making a working wage. Uh, the average actor makes $27 per hour. So if you worked on a TV show for one week, now that's a little bit different. You're going to get paid $3,700. However, 
Kelly Stewart, who's an actress who has performed for more than 20 years and has appeared on TV shows such as All American and Blackish, noted that performers traditionally don't get to take home the number that appears on their on their checks, of course. Uh, in addition to taxes, there's commissions, then an agent, a manager, a lawyer. And the other thing is, you know, when you're working on these shows, you're only paid while the show is on is in production. In other words, you don't get paid every you don't get paid 52 weeks a year for a show that has uh, 13 or 21 episodes. If, if they spent 38 weeks filming, then you'll get 38 weeks worth of pay. The other thing is that a lot of actors, a lot of working actors, even work, uh, you know, working actors whose names, you know, they will go for stretches where they can't find work and they've got houses and mortgages and and spouses and partners and, and kids and all kinds of other expenses so even if you're making a decent wage uh, there are a lot of uh, other factors you know everybody has these i understand that no matter what your your job is but just to disavow people of the notion that you know these actors are all super wealthy and just you know this this isn't the case where you know the cliche with sports uh, labor disputes is millionaires fighting with billionaires and even that's a cliche because billionaires yes they own teams there are also business concerns and sometimes they take a bath but yeah they're doing great and yes, certain athletes like Steph Curry and LeBron and A-Rod and historically a lot of other uh, ball players, uh, Peyton Manning, they're, they're set for life. But, you know, the average major leaguer does not ever get that huge nine-figure contract. The average NFL player plays for three or four years. So even in that case, you know, getting your benefits, getting your your just due is a big deal. So let's just remember here, going back to SAG after 12.7% of the union even makes the minimum to qualify for health insurance. That minimum, by the way, is $26,470. $26,470. And nearly 90% of the union members don't make that much. And I know people can say too, well, why don't they find something else to do? In a lot of cases, they do. They're going on auditions. They're occasionally getting work. They're doing commercials. They're doing industrial videos. They're doing voiceover. They might get a great guest spot once in a while. It doesn't mean their life is completely changed. In the meantime, they're doing all kinds of other work. You go to LA and yes, so many restaurant workers are also in the acting business or trying to break in or trying to become writers and directors. Even here in Chicago, I meet people all the time who have sometimes have been in some pretty big stage productions here and then they're waiting uh, tables in a restaurant to to make ends meet, to make the rent. So the reminder here is that the vast majority of those writers and actors who are out there are not making a lot of money and are just trying to get their just due, trying to get their benefits, trying not to be replaced by AI, artificial intelligence, and also just getting residuals. Because even big stars like Mandy Morris says she's gotten checks for like 87 cents for episodes of This Is Us that she did. Doesn't seem fair, does it? I don't think so. We also said we were going to talk about uh, the latest incident between performer on stage and fans in audience. We've talked about people throwing cell phones and other stuff, uh, hecklers at comedy shows and these, uh, you know, people who were so desperate for attention or to make it about themselves that they actually interrupt the performance. You probably heard about this. Miranda Lambert stopped her performance recently at a concert because there were a group of fans who were taking a selfie and she was distracted and she told them, you know, stop, please. And at first I kind of thought, geez, I can't believe these, you know, these people have to take a selfie. And well, first of all, I'll admit my assumption was, even though Miranda Lambert kind of, you know, middle of the road and appeals to a wide demographic, I just assumed they were Gen Zers or millennials. And they're actually women in their thirties, forties, fifties, and sixties who had paid, by the way, $750. I guess they are in kind of a skybox or whatever the case may be to see this uh, 
performance by Miranda Lambert, who has a Vegas residency. And, and talk about lucrative. Those are lucrative gigs. I know somebody who had a, a Las Vegas residency, and they said it was the best time they've ever had because you don't have to go on tour. You're just there. People just show up. You're doing a 90-minute show, and you're you're out of there. You get your big check. I'm going to take a listen to The View. Here's uh, Whoopi Goldberg weighing in on the controversy. If they paid money for the tickets, they came to see her. Yeah. So if she's singing, at least a little respect, so that knowledge you can see her, she can see you too. In case you missed it, Miranda briefly paused her Las Vegas show on July 15th to call out a group of concert goers for taking photos during her performance. The singer told the audience, these girls are worried about their selfie and not listening to the song. The uh, expensive tickets in the VIP section that they were in uh, are $757. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take as many selfies of, <laughs> as I want if I pay $757. I think it I'm sorry, you know just me. Maybe I want to. I want the, the fit picture and I want the music in the background. Well, and I'm going to relive it. Pictures of just themselves. Turn on the television, girl. Where are you going? Where are you going? I'm leaving y'all. Because <laughs> I, I want to take a picture with this marvelous woman. All right, you know, I've always said this about The View for, I don't know what, 20 plus years now. They know how to generate so much controversy within the show and behind the scenes. I'm not saying it's all manufactured, but there's always somebody walking out or somebody getting into a tiff. So Whoopi does this kind of walk out, pretends that she's leaving and she takes a selfie with an audience member. Now, what Whoopi says, you know, stay home, says Whoopi. If you're going to spend $750 to come to my concert, then give me the respect of watching me while I do my thing or don't come. I love Whoopi Goldberg, but with all due respect, I would say if you're going to spend $750 to come to my concert, my performance, I don't care what you do. You don't tackle me on stage. Uh, so I've kind of come around on this one. I don't think you should spend the whole concert filming with your phone. And in some cases, we've talked about this, they'll either uh, ask you to turn off your phones or even put them in those uh, baggies, those little uh, protective cases where you were not able to unlock your phone and use it. I know some artists have said, hey, you know what? First couple of songs, why doesn't everybody get it out of their system? Take your selfies, take your video of me, and then kind of settle down. I could see why it's a distraction, but, you know, they wanted to take a selfie. I think the moment would have passed and she could have moved on and maybe said something between songs. But to stop the song, it seems to me like that does come across a little bit like, you know, spoiled artist diva behavior. A lot of fans have pointed out that uh, Taylor Swift, when she sees fans taking selfies, sometimes will photobomb them from the stage, which is, you know, it's, it's equal parts great and kind of embarrassing for the fans. I personally don't need to take a selfie uh, at a concert. I don't want to see yours. I think people wildly overestimate uh, their friends and certainly their followers or Facebook friends interest in seeing their photos of themselves, whether it's, you know, at a concert or a ball game. Yeah, I, you know, I've done it too. But you know, and especially your video of a ball game or a concert with your cell phone where I'm like, you know, if I want to see a video of Taylor Swift or if I want to see the ball game, there's actually ways where there are professional cameras that have recorded these events. So this is the world we live in, though. And again, $750 a ticket. I would have a selfie booth set up for the fans. All right, let's take a quick break. We're going to hear about Portillo's and then we're going to talk about some movies that open on the same date. And we're going to talk about Barbie and Oppenheimer. All right, we're going to talk about Portillo's. You guys know the drill here. They're known for their famous Chicago hot dogs with all the famous correct Chicago ingredients, right down to that poppy seed bun. 
but there's so much more. They got great burgers. You can get Italian sausage, Italian beef, amazing French fries. Also some really good salads. Don't shortchange the salads at Portillo's. And then of course, you top it off with the legendary, the one and only chocolate cake. I know people who order the entire cake for birthdays and other occasions, but you can also get a, a slice, which will probably last you two helpings because it's amazing. And always, of course, you keep the cake at room temperature. That's how they do it at Portillo's. That's how you want to consume it. Now there are Portillo's in many locations across the country, but you can also order online and ship it via portillos.com. You can find a location near you, order online, Portillo's, P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com, Portillo's.com. Okay, so we've been talking about how Barbie and Oppenheimer opening on the same weekend. I compiled a list, and this is by no means comprehensive, but it's interesting. Going back to 1973, some films that opened on the same date. In 1973, two of the all-time most popular and beloved movies of all time open, believe it or not, they open on Christmas. Now, one is The Sting, uh, the classic Paul Newman, Robert Redford, con man twist movie, one of the great surprise endings of all time. And that's a, you know, that's a, that's a period piece, jazz age, uh, comedy adventure. Also opening, I swear to you, on Christmas in 1973, The Exorcist. That must have just made the church so happy in 1973. The Exorcist. <laughs> yes. Possession by the devil and then go see a fun con man movie. The Exorcist opened on Christmas in 1973. It was kind of a devilish uh, marketing move back then. Smokey and the Bandit. Uh, you know, you know, the road comedies. The first one, Smokey and the Bandit. And Star Wars both opened in 1977. And while Smokey and the Bandit originally was going to be considered to be the big hit, of course, Star Wars took the world by storm, and uh, Smokey and the Bandit did really, really well, but Star Wars did incredible business and launched, a, I think it launched a few sequels and spinoffs. Pretty sure about that. In the summer of 1988, A Fish Called Wanda, classic comedy, Die Hard opened on the same date. It's interesting to me that Die Hard opened in the summer of 1988. We've had the debate now for decades. I think the debate is over about whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Of course, it's a Christmas movie. It has all kinds of Christmas imagery and set during Christmas. But clearly, the studio did not think Die Hard was a Christmas movie because they opened it in July of 1988. 1989, two very different movies, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Batman. I think it was pretty obvious which choice you were going to make of which two of those movies you were going to see. And in 1995, the original Toy Story and Casino opened on the same date. Casino and Toy Story. Yeah, just a couple of wacky buddy movies, right? Actually, the one, <laughs> the one thing these films have in common is Don Rickles is in both of them because he's Mr. Potato Head, right? The voice of Mr. Potato Head. And then he had a, a, a terrific dramatic turn in Casino. Uh, Heat and Jumanji in 1995, and then in 1999, The Matrix and 10 Things I Hate About You, which brings us now to this weekend and Barbie and Oppenheimer. Uh, listen, Barbie, Greta Gerwig, uh, Margot Robbie, and Ryan Gosling, uh, the two human beings in the world who actually are more genetically perfect than Barbie and Ken, and a great supporting cast. And there's been, they've done a brilliant marketing job. I know a lot of people are getting sick of all the pink stuff, and it was getting to the point of of saturation but 
I'm pleased to report that it actually lives up to the hype. It's a it's a very clever and sweet, and the production design is amazing on this because it, it exists in Barbie land, and then Barbie becomes self-aware and travels to the real world and to the Mattel headquarters. So it's got a little bit of a, a Truman Show aspect to it, uh, but it's really its own movie. And uh, as far as movies based on real toys, and Toy Story was not based on real toys, except for Mr. Potato Head and a few minor characters. It's the greatest movie ever based on a real toy or doll, because what are the competitions? What are we talking about? Transformers, G.I. Joe, Care Bears movie. Okay, Lego movie was pretty great. But still, Barbie is the best, uh, most clever, uh, most original, and most creative uh, takeoff on a beloved uh, and sometimes uh, polarized polarizing uh creation because you know for a while there everybody was saying oh barbie you know the original stereotypical barbie and in fact margot robbie's character is known as stereotypical barbie the tall shapely blonde who's a fashion model so for a while there it was like oh barbie is setting the the women's movement back but then of course as the movie points out we had dr barbie and president barbie and psychiatrist barbie and the movie kind of flips that on its on its side and then also does a little bit of a deep dive into ken because what is ken actually without barbie who is ken without Barbie. It's a question that he asks as well. When my heart breaks. Some things have been happening that might be related. When my world shakes. Cold shower. Ooh. Falling off my roof. Ah! And my heels are on the ground. What do I have to do? You have to go to the real world. You can go back to your regular life or you can know the truth about the universe. The choice is now yours. The first one, the high heel. You have to want to know, okay? Do it again. I'm coming with you. Okay. Barbie in the real world. That's impossible. If this got out, this could mean extremely weird things for our world. This would be catastrophic! So really good stuff. So Barbie's a lot of fun. Very funny. Some great musical numbers. The social commentary is anything but subtle, but it's spot on. Uh, but just a really good time. And I, it, it's a great looking film. Also a great looking film about, <laughs> talk about, uh, and yeah, the cliche is true. It is about as far away from the, uh, you know, kind of day glow fantasy of Barbie as you can get. Of course, we're talking about Oppenheimer. This is Christopher Nolan's three-hour historical biopic. It's gorgeously photographed. It's brilliantly edited. The acting is amazing. It's engrossing. Guys, it's, it's a three-hour running time. I never felt there was a moment when it lags. It deserves at least that much treatment, in part because it's such a wide-ranging story, which centers mostly on Oppenheimer, the main character, of course, uh, but also everybody around him, a variety of scientists and different people in Oppenheimer's life. Uh, his relationships. A lot of people might not know this, but, you know, unlike a lot of the, um, you know, kind of socially awkward scientists, the ones that, you know, were out there kind of, uh, you know, felt really uncomfortable in uh, public situations and only were, you know, at home in the lab. Uh, Oppenheimer had a good time out there, man. Theory will take you only so far. I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon. 
he had a huge ego as most of the physicists did uh he had myriad of romances uh some of them were of the extramarital variety he had this ranch in new mexico which is why they put the trinity site there it was near where so even though he was this new york uh, highly trained incredibly brilliant uh lab and uh theoretical genius more theory than lab work really uh he kind of embraced the whole idea of the american cowboy killian murphy is great as oppenheimer robert Downey jr florence Pugh, emily blunt the cast goes on and on even in some of the smaller roles you'll see oscar winners and, and big stars uh the interesting technique that nolan does first of all of course as you, as you know he's a master and a purist when it comes to film if you can see it in the 70 millimeter or even the imax presentations please do it's incredible uh, he takes a very interesting tact here because he tells the story from the point of two hearings in 1954 the Atomic Energy Security Board was holding hearings to determine whether Oppenheimer would retain his security clearance because of his uh, long time and pe mostly past associations with the Communist Party, possible security leaks while the Manhattan Project was going on. So we see those hearings, which were held in private and in secret, because by then Oppenheimer had become a huge global superstar, a war hero, and they didn't want him to have a platform because he loved using his platform. So they did this all kind of quietly and on the side. In the meantime, uh, Louis Strauss, uh, who was played by Robert Downey Jr., who's going to get a Best Supporting Actor nomination, he headed the, the Atomic Energy Board. He was um, uh, an admiral. He was, uh, so he was a Navy man, obviously a businessman, uh, kind of a self-appointed amateur physicist. And anyway, there were hearings for him uh, five years after the uh, the Oppenheimer hearings, and these were held in public. And this was all about him becoming uh, Secretary of Commerce under President Eisenhower's administration. But it all ties together. But Nolan uses those two hearings as framing devices, and some of it is in black and white, and some of it is in color. And in one aspect, it kind of reminded me of JFK, Oliver Stone's film, although JFK trafficked in a lot of uh, speculation and conspiracy theory, whereas Oppenheimer is grounded almost solely in fact. As a matter of fact, some of the conversations, some of the testimonies, uh, some of the speeches are verbatim from nonfiction works and recordings of Oppenheimer's. And then there's, of course, imagined conversations and situations, as you're always going to get in dramatic films. It's all put together beautifully. It is not one of these worshipful biographies it is also not an indictment of oppenheimer it's about an incredibly brilliant man who was the father of the atomic bomb and it gets into all of that and the ethics of that the morals of that and the politics of that it's one of the best movies i've seen in the last 20 years folks the best movie of 2023 and certainly will get probably 10 to 12 oscar nominations oppenheimer and barbie i hope you see them both in theaters thanks to everybody who's been listening We'll be back with a fresh podcast soon.